Psalm 10 on page 540 of the Church Bibles. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello and good morning. My name is Gordon. I'm the assistant minister here. So, uh, let me add my welcome to you. If you're new or visiting, it's great to have you here with us. We're starting a new series in the book of Psalms. Uh, this is the songbook of the Bible. These Psalms, they're songs, they're poems. Uh, now, I remember trying to read uh, The Lord of the Rings uh, back when I was at school. Not the, not the movies, the actual books. Um, it's a great story, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, there's wizards, there's elves, there's action, there's a, there's a quest. It's a great story. Uh, but in the middle of this great story, every now, every now and then, uh, the story pauses, and J.R. Tolkien, the author, just chucks in a random poem or a song. Uh, and some of these poems or songs, they're, they're really long. They take up pages. And I'm thinking, you know, what's going on here? You know, take me back to the story. I want to go back to the action. I don't want to read this song. I don't want to read this poem. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, um, I met a die-hard Lord of the Rings fan. I don't know if you've met Lord of the Rings fans before. They're, they're a special species in themselves, aren't they? Um, and I, anyway, I told him about these problems that I had with the books, these, you know, these poems. I can't, and he's like, no, 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 no. Actually, these poems, they're, they're here for a reason. They're important. You know, they help you understand what the story is behind, you know, behind the story and you know, what it's all about. And so I took his word. And last year, actually, I went and like, on my Audible, on my audiobook, I, I, I listened to the whole of Lord of the Rings. And um, 
wouldn't say I'm a fan just yet, but yeah, I've come to appreciate this more. The, the book of Psalms can feel like an interruption to a great story. Uh, the Bible is a story, uh, a story that begins in Genesis, um, which we looked at, we finished last week. A uh, story that begins in Genesis that goes through the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. And the second section of the Old Testament, the prophets, it continues this story. This great story of the Bible runs through the law and the prophets. Um, God chooses this messy family. We, we saw that in Genesis, didn't he? It, this family becomes Israel. God saves Israel, brings them out of Egypt, brings them into his land. But God ends up having to kick them out of the land because they reject him. But the story doesn't finish. Uh, the latter prophets, they keep pointing to a savior, a messiah, a Christ to come. But then there's a pause. There's a pause. And the Old Testament puts a pause on this story and gives us a bunch of writings. The third section of the Old Testament, the writings, uh, which begins with this massive book of songs, which we call the Psalms. And I've come to really appreciate this. The Psalms help us pause and reflect on who God is and what it means to be his people and how to live in his word, his world, how to live in light of his word and his promises, and particularly in light of his promised Messiah. And I pray that you too, as we spend the next few weeks in Psalms, that you'll come to appreciate this book of the Bible as well. Uh, my college lecturer, he taught me that Psalms is like, reading the Psalms is like stepping into a grand auditorium. So impressive that you, you kind of look up and gaze and just admire how, how awesome it is. And in this grand auditorium, you hear voices of people singing to God. Um, and these singers, they're all different. There's the great King David, there's unnamed priests, there's prophets, there's normal folk. And they're, they're all singing in harmony. It's one, there's unity to these psalms. But they're singing different words. The, 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 the psalms are all different. They're singing different words and with different postures. Some of them are standing up high, arms lifted, praising God. But others are on their knees. They're in tears. They're crying out to God. Uh, like today's psalm, Psalm 10. You know, here in Psalm 10 is someone crying out to God in a way that sounds a little bit like they're complaining to God. And this person has chosen not to identify himself, although it sounds a bit like David. Uh, friends, my goal today isn't just to unpack Psalm 10, but I also want to model for you how to read the Psalms so that you can enjoy this rich songbook that God has given us, so that you can walk around this grand auditorium, so to speak, and admire it. And I pray that it will deepen your understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ so that we can live in light of his promises, particularly as we wait for his victorious return. So let's, let's pray. Lord God, you are majestic, and your word is so rich and sufficient for us. By your spirit, Lord, awaken our souls, and by the light of your gospel, guide our paths. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so keep your Bibles open at Psalm 10, and actually you'll notice a little footnote at the start there um, in, in the Bible, which say that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were probably part of the same, probably the same poem originally. And that's why I say Psalm 10 was probably written by David, because David wrote Psalm 9. Uh, but Psalm 10, I've called a song for justice. And it begins, doesn't it? It starts with this complaint 
against God. Listen again to verse 1. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever said that to God? Where are you? Why haven't you done anything? Why aren't you doing anything? You know, when life isn't going our way, we ask this question, don't we? Where are you, God? Even people who, don't, who wouldn't associate themselves with having faith in God, they would ask this question, where are you, God? And I wonder if you expected this verse to be in the Bible. And I wonder if you expected this to be the reason. See, the psalmist isn't looking at his own life and going, where are you, God? Why haven't you done anything? He's, he's looking around. He's looking at the world. He's looking at the injustice of the world, people taking advantage of the poor, people taking advantage of the vulnerable. That's what makes him complain to God, you know, the wickedness that he sees in the world. And listen to this picture of the wicked man that he paints for us in the next verses. In verse 2, the wicked man. Verse 2, this wicked man hunts down the weak. Again in verse 2, uh, he, he, you know, he's, uh, he hunts down the weak. He's like a hunter, you know, hunting his prey. But not just that, he's like the weak are caught in his schemes. This is a man who, who sits down and plans how to, how to do evil, how to scheme. He schemes. He doesn't just fall into doing wickedness. He, he schemes. Uh, in verse 2, he's arrogant. He's arrogant. Uh, in verse 3, he boasts about his evil cravings. In verse 5, he thinks that he's invincible. No one can stop. No one can shake me, he says. Nothing can ever shake me. He thinks that no one can stop him. But see that at the heart of this wicked man is that he doesn't care about God. Look at verse 3. He reviles the Lord. In verse 5, uh, he rejects God's law. He rejects God's law. And verse 4, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. See, at the heart of this wicked man are these words, there is no God. There is no God, so I can do what I want. I can do what I want and get away with it. See, people do evil to others not because they had a bad upbringing, not because they had a bad education, not because they received a bad set of DNA, but because they say, there is no God. Rejecting God, rejecting God's word on how we should live, that's the starting point for all wickedness and all evil. Uh, this picture of the wicked man, it's repeated for us in verses 7 to 11. So in verse 7, he deceives with his words in his tongue. This is someone who, who tricks people into trusting them, trusting him, and then he takes advantage of them. In verse 8, he's like a lion, you know, lurching, stalking its prey. In verse 9, he's a fisherman trying to lure victims into his trap. This, this is a man with no mercy. He doesn't, he doesn't show mercy. He is a man that is a picture of the worst kinds of evil. And it all comes from a heart, again, that says to itself, verse 11, God won't notice. God will never notice. God will never see. There is no God. Wickedness comes from a heart that couldn't care less about who God is. But that's not exactly why this psalmist is complaining. He's complaining because God's not doing anything about it. Why aren't you doing anything, God? Why does it look like, in fact, that these wicked people are getting blessed rather than cursed? In verse 5, he's saying that they're, they're prospering. These wicked people are prospering. Uh, Robert Mugabe, he's an ex-Zimbabwe dictator. I don't have to tell you about 
the evil and the oppression and the violence that he was responsible for. Did you know that when he retired in 2017, Robert Mugabe received a retirement bonus of $10 million US. $10 million US. This wicked man finished the rest of his life living in wealth, comfort, and prosperity. Why does God allow this? Isn't, isn't this a fair complaint? Now, people often file this complaint against God and then they turn away from him. They say, you know, God's either too weak to do anything about it or he's morally questionable to allow something like this to happen. And sadly, they, they end up making the same mistake that this wicked man does. They reject God. But do you see what the psalmist does here? See, the psalmist sees the injustice in the world. He complains to God, but he doesn't turn away. He doesn't go, that, no, that's it with God. I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to maybe raise my own army up and take on these wicked men. No, the psalmist, he turns to God. He turns towards God. Look at verse 12. He says, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Don't forget the, the helpless. He's not looking to human solutions here. He looks to the Lord. And listen to the picture of God that he paints for us. Verse 14, God sees the, the, afflict, the, the trouble of the afflicted. God sees. He considers their grief. And the victims, verse 14, they can commit themselves to God because God has always been their helper. He's been the helper and he is the helper of the fatherless. God sees, God cares, and God hears. Look at verse 17. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. God can even hear the cries of the hearts of those who are too distressed to cry out loud. God listens to them and he strengthens them. Verse 18, he defends them. Despite, see, despite the injustice that the psalmist sees, he still knows that God is a God who cares and defends the oppressed. And he knows that the Lord is king forever. Verse 16, this world is ruled by God. It was, it is, it always will be. And God won't let evil go on forever. He will judge and put an end to this. That's what it ends with in verse 18. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's not why can't you do anything, God. It's why aren't you do any, doing anything now? Why aren't you doing anything now? There's a difference there. You see, the very fact that this psalm is in the Bible tells us really, something really important about who God is. God is the all-seeing judge of the world, the ruler of the world. God is the defender and the, the savior of the vulnerable, yes. But God is also gracious enough to allow his people to complain to him. God makes himself accessible and open to the complaints of his people. But this isn't any type of complaint. This is a complaint that directs the psalmist to trust God even more. It's a complaint that draws him into an even deeper relationship with his God. It's a complaint that aligns his heart with God's own heart. God is a God of justice. He has a heart for justice. And Psalm 10 is a song that aligns with this heart that God has for justice. But is this our song? Can we sing this song? Uh, we're at point two in the outline, if you're following along. 
Uh, this is actually the most important part of this sermon. See, because if we miss this step in reading the Psalms, we'll fall into the danger of treating the Psalms into a book of moralism or, or legalism. Uh, a few years back, Leanne and I and Jonathan, we went to Fiji for a holiday. And we stayed at this resort. And at this resort, they had this walkway or breezeway from the rooms where we were staying to the pool. And uh, people would go back and forth along this walkway uh, to go to the pool and to the bar. Uh, and on this walkway, uh, some Fijian women would bring some of their goods, uh, they'd lay them on the ground on a mat, and uh, they'd try and sell it to the tourists, you know, to make money for themselves. And there was this particular woman who brought these beautiful seashells. Uh, she made them into necklaces, and she laid them on the ground on the mat on, 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 in this walkway. Uh, and at the end of her mat was this gigantic seashell. It was beautiful. That was her most expensive item. Uh, one day, uh, there were two ladies. Uh, they were from Australia. I could tell by their accents. Uh, they were coming from the pool. Uh, they had you know, cocktails in their hands. They looked like they maybe had a little bit too much to drink. They weren't really walking in a straight line. They were laughing, having a good time. And they were wearing heels. And they were walking along this walkway. They didn't quite see this Fijian woman and her shells all laid out. And one of these ladies stepped with her heels onto the most expensive shell necklace. And these ladies, they stopped. They looked at the Fijian woman, who was in shock, looked her in the eye. Then they looked at each other. They laughed and walked away. Unbelievable, right? Horrible. But do you know what? I stood there, saw the whole thing, and to my shame, I did nothing. I didn't call those ladies back. I didn't, I didn't pay for the necklace, the broken necklace. To my shame, I did nothing. I just stood there. I judged these ladies in my heart, but I did nothing. I may not have actively done wickedness, but I was passive in letting wickedness happen. I was like Adam in the Garden of Eden, passive. See, we can read Psalm 10 and we can say, thank you, God, that I sponsor four Compassion children, that I give money to World Vision. Thank you that I'm not like Robert Mugabe or like these two drunk ladies. A few Psalms later, we read this. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are all wicked. That's what the book of Psalms says. See, the only one who can truly stand in the psalmist here in Psalm 10, the only one who can truly sing Psalm 10, this song for justice, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one whose heart was truly aligned with God's heart for justice and compassion. Oh, how it would have broken Jesus' heart to, when he entered our world and looked around and saw our wickedness, how we treated each other, how, how it would have broken his heart. See, God doesn't stand far off as the, the psalmist claim, uh, complains to God in verse 1. He doesn't, he doesn't hide from our trouble. In Christ, the Son of God came near, so near that he himself became a victim of our wickedness. Jesus became helpless. Jesus became weak. Jesus himself was crushed as wicked men conspired evil against him, as they plotted his murder. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes, Jesus, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. 
When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see how Jesus echoes Psalm 10. And just like the psalmist cries out, why to God? In verse 1, Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, he cries out, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in that moment, as Jesus hung on the cross, all of God's wickedness, all of God's anger at wickedness, all of God's anger at our oppression of others, at our doing nothing when evil is done in front of us, all of God's anger at corruption, at our deceit, at our pretending to be good, at our pride and our selfishness, all of God's anger at our lack of care for each other, at our hatred and murder, at our adultery and lust, all of God's anger at human genocide, at the ongoing human trafficking and child slavery, at all of God's anger at our injustice. On the cross, all of God's anger at wickedness was poured on Jesus Christ. See, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God gives us his answer to injustice and evil. Yes, the the gospel promises a future day of judgment where the Lord Jesus will come and punish all evil and put an end to it. But now is not the day of judgment. Now is the day for salvation. In the gospel, God graciously, mercifully, redeems wicked people who repent and come to him. He forgives wicked people like me and you. He redeems us. He redeems wicked people. And he changes them by the gospel, by his spirit. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. See, the gospel is the only way we can claim Psalm 10 as our own song. Uh, We have to be cautious not to read the Psalms without the gospel. But when we do see Psalm 10 through the lens of the gospel, we can sing this song for justice. And we can sing it hard. We can sing this song. And I want to say two things. The first is that the gospel drives us to care about justice. You know, he's the people who actually care about justice. It's not too hard to get motivated for it. You know, being concerned for justice makes you look good, doesn't it? You can image yourself as a justice person, you know, the right hashtags, the right filters on your Facebook profile. And it's easy to do all this good stuff to, to justify yourself, to tell yourself that you're better than others, to even tell God that, that you're good that he should accept you based on these good works. But that's not our motivation as Christians. You know who the key figure was behind the abolition of slavery in the 1800s? It was a Christian by the name of William Wilberforce. But do you know who his great mentor was? The one who kept pushing and encouraging him not to give up on this great campaign for, for justice and for liberation? His great mentor was a man who himself used to be actively involved in oppressing Africans by trading them as slaves. He was a man who then met Jesus, repented, received the gospel, and was slowly changed by the Spirit to renounce his old wicked ways. It was John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. See, when you grasp the gospel... When you truly understand how amazing God's grace is to you, a wretched sinner, you will change. You will change. You have a heart for justice. See, the gospel drives us to care about those who are oppressed, but the gospel also drives us to care for those who are doing the oppressing, that they might repent and be saved and change. Uh, My second point 
Um, God's a God-focused response to injustice. Actually, I stole it from Pippi and Jill. Um, not Pippi before in, uh, uh, in Spotlight. But each Monday we discuss as a staff team the passage ahead. And on Monday, both Pippi and Jill shared this really helpful reflection. See, Psalm 10 models for us a really important way to respond to injustice. A way that focuses on God and not on human solutions. Not on us. See, we can cry out to God. If injustice is done to you, if, or if you see injustice in the world, you can cry out to God. Not just allowed to, you're encouraged to. Because of Jesus, we have great intimacy, great access to God. We're his children. And children are allowed to cry out to their father. Children are allow, allowed to ask their father, you know, why is this happening? Or, you know, when will you stop it? I mentioned before that Psalm 10 is probably the same poem, part of the same poem as Psalm 9, which is a thanksgiving poem. So here you have a song saying thank you to God and also asking God why in the same song. And I wonder if that's a little bit of a reflection of what it's like to live as God's children in this broken world. You know, we often say thank you to God and also cry out to him why, you know, at the same time as we seek to trust God more. But just like the psalmist turns towards God instead of away from God, injustice should make us turn to God instead of away from him. We look to God first. We look to God's promises first before we look to human solutions. And, it, and we trust God even more. We seek to trust him more. Even when we need to act ourselves to help the oppressed, we trust God even more. And we look to Jesus Christ, who is the king who reigns forever and ever, verse 16. Our Lord Jesus will one day put an end to evil and injustice. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are righteous and just. You hate wickedness. You hate injustice. And Lord, we're sorry for our mistakes in this area when we fail to treat each other the way you command us to. Thank you that in your Son, you offered to redeem wicked people like us, to change us because of your Son who died on the cross because he stood in our place and took on your wrath against our sin. Lord, make our hearts like your heart. Help us to care about justice for all people and give us wisdom to know what we can do. But help us ultimately to trust in your judgment and your justice that you will one day put an end to all injustice in our world through your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.